Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Blister Podcast on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out every single thing we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. All right, well, for our 250th episode of the Blister Podcast, it is time once again for Cody Townsend and me to review some of the news from this past February. And thanks to all of you who wrote in with some Mountain Town advice questions and topics. We don't have any Mountain Town relationship advice questions this time around. So come on, folks. We know you have questions. Don't be shy. Send those in, and Cody and I will give you our incredibly unprofessional best advice. And just before we get started here, a bit of a public service announcement. Our very good friend and colleague, Dr. Lauren Cooper. You have heard me talk to Dr. Cooper on our Gear 30 podcast because Lauren Cooper is a big part of our whole Blister Labs team. Well, this past week, she texted me a photo of herself in a hospital bed because she managed to wreck her knee. Now, that's terrible, of course. We hate seeing our friends get injured. But what's even worse, she told me that she had not yet signed up for her Blister Plus Spot membership. And so she is kind of kicking herself and she said, I will help you get this messaging out. And so that's what I'm doing here. And we'll probably have Lauren on our Gear 30 podcast to just share her story and talk a bit about what happened. Anyway, we do have this Blister Plus Spot membership and we created this thing specifically for cases like this. What it does is any time you are injured skiing or snowboarding or backcountry skiing or mountain biking or kayaking or trail running, and you can see a complete list of activities that are covered on our website, and we'll include a link to this in the show notes of this episode. But with our Blister Plus Spot coverage, you will get $25,000 worth of coverage per incident, and that's for a 12-month period. So we think that this certainly works best for those of you who already have insurance, but most likely have a pretty high or very high deductible. But if you don't have any insurance, well, that's even worse if something were to happen to you. And this is an inexpensive way to get coverage doing some of these things that we all love to do, but that do involve some real risks. So please, if you've been thinking about getting our Blister Plus Spot coverage, please sign up for it before you go get hurt, because I don't want any of you to have to send me photos or email me or whatever saying like, God, I wish I'd just gotten that thing I was intending to, and I just didn't pull the trigger. So again, we will include a link in the show notes of this episode, or you can go to our website to get all of the details about this Blister Plus Spot coverage. So please get yourself signed up and then get yourself back outside doing all of these different sports that we love. And with that, let's review some news with Cody. Here we go. Well, Cody, 
It feels like it's been like a year since we've done one of these. I don't know if that's just my perspective or if you also feel like it's been a minute. What's up? It feels like it's been a week to me. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, your your busyness might have been different than my busyness, but uh, so maybe that's okay. our time warp differences. I, you know, time is all relative, as they say. So uh, that's what they say. So, yeah. So for me, it feels like I'm like, didn't we just do this? But yeah, no, it's been a wow. while. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, shit. Maybe I just miss you more than you miss me. I don't know. It's hard to say. That's so cute. (laughs) Tell us what you've been up to. I know what you've been up to like yesterday because you pushed off the recording of this podcast. So let's go. Let's talk about it. I mean, I pushed off like everything. (laughs) Like it's just been a complete ignoring of (laughs) life. And today is chaos because of that. Um, But yeah, no, we're in like full snowpocalypse in Tahoe right now. Snowmageddon, we've gotten over a hundred inches in the last seven days. Um, I think it's even more than that. It's like bananas how deep it is. Um, And yesterday I pretty much had the Definitely 100% the deepest day I've ever skied in Tahoe. Um, you know, we've gotten this amount of snow before in this storm in this shorter period, but this was just uh, like blower. Like the fact that it was so cold and snowing almost down to sea level, it was just like unbelievably deep. Like not just skiing the top 12 inches of very consolidated six feet of snow, like conceded, unconsolidated, super deep overhead trenching pow, like just bananas. So. Um, it was, uh, yeah, it was really, really fun. I had two days in a row of just like choking on powder. You didn't even really have to like do anything to like get it in your (laughs) face. It was actually more, you kind of wanted to straighten out and not turn because it was just like choking on snow. Um, it was, it was incredible. Um, I will say I will add too. So this is, this gets brought up in like social media and gets brought up in general where, yeah, the last two days were rated high avalanche days. Um, they were forecasted pretty much all three levels, high avalanche danger. And like, of course you get like six feet of snow in 48 hours. It's probably going to be rated high, but like, I like almost want to say to the people out there that are wondering these, that have these questions. First, social media is a really hard place to put the nuance and the time that we go into evaluating things. Um, and then two, like just kind of lay it out here is that like the last six days in a row, I've been in the snow. I've been in the backcountry in this exact same zone over and over and over. We're pretty much in the middle of the storm, seeing what's happening, constantly evaluating what's going on in the snowpack, knowing your terrain really well. Like I'm going into zones that I've skied like 30 times this year alone, if not hundreds of times. So, you know, like almost could navigate this place in a complete whiteout. And like, we're going out there cautiously. Like, yes, the danger rating is high, but like one, you know, I don't want to sound conceited is like, but I'm a professional. This is what I do. And I get like, I live in the snowpack and I'm out doing these things on a daily basis. And as we were evaluating, as we were finding things out there, we're like this, there's no slab forming. We're getting some soft slab sloughs off the top and that's about it. And it was like, I, I honestly, it was like a miracle. Like, of course, like an Abbey center is going to want to be cautious when you get six feet of snow. But like what I found out there was that it was like, I've never seen six feet of snow, like set up so perfectly with no layers and no slab formed on top. 
that's for the zone we were in. There are zones that we're going to still want to stay out of. There was an avalanche off tram face last night that ended up hitting condos. So it's like, yeah, if we're going to be in a zone where you have that big overhead hazard, like that's stupid, but we're going to these like micro terrains, little pockets, treat areas, very familiar with where you're going. And so it's just, it's one of those things. There's a lot more complexity than just the color rating of avalanche danger. And yeah, we just, uh, you know, I'm not going to say, like, say I'm like, oh, it was 100% safe. Like, no, like, you're definitely still taking risk on being out not a day like yesterday. But, you know, it's also when your head is in the snow, your feet are in it day after day, you're in the middle of the storm, you can kind of understand it a little bit more. Um, you're, you just kind of feel really what's going on out there. And yesterday kind of felt like it was, it was pretty locked up for being that much snow. It was pretty bananas. <laughs> Well, glad you got some good pow skiing. Glad you made it back safe. What ski were you on? How wide were you going? Yeah, I skied on the QST 106 Echo. I figured. I've been skiing. I figured. I've been skiing that ski just like I can't reach anything else. Like I almost brought the 118. Um, I have like an old model of the 118, um, which I still love as a ski, but I've just been skiing that 106 over and over and over. And I just was like, why would I not? Um, So I brought that out there and worked really good. Drew is on the same thing. Like maybe it's also too, you can trench a little bit deeper (laughs) with a little bit narrower ski um, instead of being a little held up by a little fast. So, cause you weren't going to floating on top of this snow, that's for sure. So yeah, been liking it. I actually, I did my first backflip of the year, which I was proud of on summit MTN, the S lab summit MTN boots, pin bindings and QST one Oh sixes sold ski Mountaineer. Still got it. <laughs> still got it. Still got it. That's a hell of an update. Yeah. That's a, that's a real positive update. Yeah. Have, have you been trenching deep in powder lately or just trenching deep in summits and all that kind of stuff and testing <laughs> skis? Primarily uh, trenching deep in, in summit. And, um, but I mean, the event went super, super well. Um, we're really happy with all that. If I had to do a shot for every time somebody asked me if you were going to be at the summit next year, I would actually, I just would be dead from alcohol poisoning. (laughs) I just kept saying I didn't invite him. That's a good way to put it. No, we keep our distance. We only talk on zoom. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. If we, if we show up in person, who knows that the universe might alter, but uh, no, we'll see. I, 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 I told people, I was like, Hey, you know, there's this thing called the 50 we're trying to get this wrapped up so that I think it's probably safe to say will be the answer to the question for next year, which is how are you doing on that? And what are things looking like? So anyway, people can stop asking me that. I definitely want to go and I wanted to go, but it's even double this year with my wife producing a movie and me filming and helping with that. So like even my time is like more limited for my project. So I'm trying to sneak it in. In fact, I'm uh, just so everyone knows that I'm going to go full sacrificial lamb. I'm going to Switzerland tomorrow and uh, going from where pretty much the most snow is in the world oh to where there's the least. So 
<laughs> yeah. It, your trend continues. Yeah, yeah. You just keep running away from snow. Totally. I know. But, you know, this is, I, I literally thought this yesterday. I was watching some people like free riders and junior free rides, the, the qualifiers and all that stuff. And they were local guys that were missing this pow and this cycle and they're out competing. And I was like, you know what? But that's kind of like what it takes. This is what you do as a job. Like you can't just like, if I just wanted to ski the absolute best snow, I wouldn't be a professional skier. Like I get an opportunity to ski a lot of great snow, but you got to go to work. And my work this next two weeks is in Switzerland with Elise. Uh, she's filming her movie. So, so yeah, we got to leave. And I mean, seriously, like complaining about going to Switzerland, <laughs> like with the family, bringing Indy, like it's going to be a cool trip. So in that regard, awesome. uh, yeah, you're leaving great snow, but whatever. I, I cannot complain about going to europe on like a ski vacation feel <laughs> yeah yeah no it's cool well yeah one of these years we're gonna get both you and elise at the summit and it's just a question of which year yeah totally hopefully next year <laughs> fingers crossed <laughs> <laughs> all right what are we talking about here we've got uh some good topics, I think, for for this reviewing the news. Where do you want to start? Um, I want to start with something that actually happened last month that we kind of unfortunately missed. And we had a pretty full docket last month of topics to review. And a lot of people were asking us to weigh in on this one. Totally. But they were. And we just kind of like somehow missed it a little bit. So we can bring it back up because I still think it's a very relevant talk topic. But um, it's about Warren Miller and it's about their ownership group being the outside um, pretty much canceling any new filming for the next two years. There's some wishy-washy in there, kind of the way they're framing things, but like my general gist is there's not going to be quote unquote, a new ski and snowboard film for 2023 and 2024. So they're going to be using archival footage, new narration, and some other footage that might not have been seen to put two films out for the next two years. Um, this is the first time in 74 years that Warren Miller has not produced a new ski film. Outside notes it for creative reasons. Obviously, there could be up to a wide range of speculation considering what has been happening with Outside recently. I don't know. Do you believe creative reasons? Well, so our source on this is an article that was posted in the Missoulin, and so we'll include a link to that. But, you know, it, yeah, it, it's actually not very straightforward what is sort of being said and claimed, et cetera. And on the one hand, I mean, it actually says both. On one hand, they're like, yeah, it's actually creative reasons, not budgetary. And then later they're like, yeah, but I mean, you know, we're not immune to sort of the macroeconomic landscape. And there's then a comment, too, that in terms of how Warren Miller films have been funded previously, it sort of intimates that there was some interest in switching that up and maybe gaining more control of the film. And so that would, if true, count as sort of looking at moving in a different creative direction like business creativity is essentially what you're trying to say maybe yeah maybe. okay i can i can buy that i mean um yeah maybe there is something to do with it i know for when they cite the macroeconomic reasons be like yeah no it's like you're looking at the ski industry right now um and their willingness to invest in 
films like this, like it might be diminishing. I do know though that a lot of major ski areas, major ski companies, major brands are willing to invest what it takes to make these segments happen. Usually how it goes in Warren Miller films in the past is pretty much every segment is paid for by the entity where they are filming and or the brand and the athletes that they're filming. And those costs are just covered. And they kind of mentioned it in the article is like, their production costs are covered. And then so it's only profit on top of the distribution, which is a really good model. But maybe there is a different model and maybe they are seeing pushback to it. Um, I, I, that's what I don't know. I feel like internally though, like, like Warren Miller, we talk about big ski films like MSP and TGR, like Warren Miller dwarfs them. Like it is on a just different stratosphere of how popular and how many people see their films, especially in person. So, so I am like, I know that like there's brands and, and companies and ski areas that want to put money into there, want to spend $150,000 to produce a segment at their own ski area. So I, I definitely wonder what's kind of going on business-wise behind the scenes um, to, to create this outcome. I have my guesses, which I think I won't share because it's just my guess. But, it, but if you look at what's being pushed over there, it's not that difficult to kind of figure out where sort of the switching up of revenue and distribution, let's say, you know, I kind of see how it could happen. But I do think the the bigger issue is what it means for athletes and filmers, right? It kind of is fair enough. It's like, hey, you know, we're coming up on a 75th anniversary. Let's let's take a minute to curate and revisit a lot of iconic footage. I think that's a perfectly reasonable thing to do. I think, though, there starts to just be the question of what are we doing as an industry to take care of people? Like, I'm not saying doing any favors, but like taking care of very talented, hardworking, committed people when we're just like, sorry, you know, we're out here. Like that impacts, that impacts the broader outdoor community and snow sports community. Yeah. And I, I mean, I look one step beyond that of just like, not even the, like almost like charity and supporting people within this industry. I look at it as like, I was told by someone who I look up to a lot and respect a lot as a filmmaker, uh, not say the name, but he knows who he is. Um, he had this thing about Vale and his biggest criticism of Vale was that they were not investing in Making that location, that ski area, just the culture of skiing rad because they weren't investing in films. They weren't investing in like, like come to, come to Vale. This place is the coolest place on the planet. Like, you know, so many employees are driven to come to work at a ski area because they dream of pow days. They dream of partying at the night. They dream of ski. They dream of just being a part of something cool. And so to me, I look at like that as a very like really good criticism of Vale. 
ironically, they are just this next year. I know starting to invest in making more films and making more kind of culture pieces that just invest not in a direct ROI for themselves, but an ROI for the ski industry as a whole. Like skiing's a cool sport. Come, come live in the mountain town. Come work in a mountain town because like this is the coolest place to be. Um, with Warren Miller, that's what I worry about most. Warren Miller has been a gateway drug to ski addicts for generations. My first film I ever watched, the the film that defined I'm going to be a skier was a Warren Miller ski film. And they're still, because they have such a broad reach to such a broad demographic of people, there's still that exists. People move to ski areas um, because of Warren Miller films. So like, I kind of worry about, you know, outside not the company just outside in general like business people looking at this as strictly a business transaction looking the numbers and saying that like hey yeah this this is not producing a positive roi you're like guess what it produces a really positive roi for outdoor sports as a whole for skiing as a whole which then only helps your brand so that's what i kind of worry about and i hope that they're not missing um maybe to give them the benefit of the doubt maybe it needs a reinvigoration maybe it needs to like be like hey we're 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 effing Warren Miller. Pay attention to us. And maybe that's what they're trying to do with these next two films. But it doesn't quite feel like that with the context of what's been going on with layoffs, with changes, with investments in NFTs, all that kind of stuff. It just feels like maybe that giving him the benefit of the doubt isn't warranted, but I'm always going to be willing to do it just to see what's actually going to happen from it. Yeah. Moving on. This is more just, uh, I kind of wanted to give a shout out. I just titled this one, Records Fall. You know, as we like to do, combine a little bit of, sprinkle in a little bit of non-outdoor industry news with our industry news. I think this is the right time to say a word about Michaela Schifrin and LeBron James. (laughs) I mean, it's kind of been remarkable, right? I think sometimes in the sort of broader sports world, we get to witness history actually being made, you know, and the tear that Michaela has been on this season. Now, one World Cup victory away from tying Stenmark's all-time record. This has been wild and just astonishing to watch. At this same time, we just witnessed LeBron James break the NBA scoring record, which had stood for about 40 years. And I don't know, I just was, um, I was enjoying watching and sort of taking in both of these things, watching greatness in real time, watching history in real time. And it's very much worth raising a glass to, I think. Yeah. Um, I I mean I follow basketball I've you know know what LeBron did and I think it was really cool I actually listen to a couple of podcasts saying how like monumental this was and how it was like kind of cool to like celebrate the fact that there was this record that Kareem Abdul-Jabbar had that almost seemed untouchable and he passed it and then even the like oh he's played longer you're like well yeah his like 
points per game ratio is like one of the highest ever. It's like ridiculous. So all these things, and it's like pretty cool to watch that. Um, I am not going to get into the debate of LeBron versus Jordan. I'm not educated enough, nor probably am too biased to even have it. But what I do want to talk about is mainly Michaela. Um, two things. One, like, I think she's probably the most underrated goat of all time um, because she's going to be that, you know, she's already pretty much destroying every single record. Ingmar Stenmark um, even said, she's like, I didn't, I don't, I'm not even close to her, who is the the record holder for Morse World Cup victories since the seventies, I believe. Um, and, uh, and uh, you know, it's like watching this happen and not seeing her thrust on the stage that I think she deserves has been a little like disheartening at certain times. Like, uh, it was a few years ago. I want to say 2019. I don't know exactly, but she set the record for the highest winning percentage for any individual sport across history, like across any, like, so you're talking tennis, golf, all these, all these sports. And it's not like ski racing is like, oh, you only have four events. You had to win them. Like they have a ton of events and they're very mixed and they're all over the place. And she was competing in two to three different disciplines. And so it's like her greatness is just, it's unbelievable. And it's kind of almost a bummer. She's not on as much of a national stage. I have a personal rant that has been frustrating the hell out of me this season. So at least, and I love watching ski racing It's skiing. It's on TV. I, I know a lot of these people grew up ski racing. It's a great sport this year. Um, pretty much ski racing from national TV has been eliminated. Um, I know I've had some contacts with some people on the back ends of it. And it's like FIS, the U S ski team and NBC pretty much just dropped the title ball on this whole entire thing. And the only way I've been able to watch Michaela Schifrin chase history is by subscribing to some channel called ski and snowboard live.com, which is the, you pay the same thing for Netflix per month to watch just ski racing. And it's been really, really sad that like FIS, the U S ski team media partners didn't see this coming and put a huge emphasis on like, Hey, like, we have one of the most marketable athletes and one of the greatest athletes in any sport ever that's going to like create records this year. Let's make this happen. This is going to ha- be beneficial for everybody, for Michaela, for sponsors, for the sport. And it's just completely dropped the ball. Like there's a couple races on Peacock. I think there was one or two races early on NBC, the Olympic channel, and that's it. And it's been really sad to like, like really pay, like pay extra money and seek out trying to watch one of the greatest skiers of all time do this. So my open call to if anyone's at the US ski team listening to this, like they've probably seen my criticism on Twitter, but like, man, what a bummer. We dropped the ball on that. I know there's a lot of complexity to it too. I know that like this is, there's some things they're working on there. I know it, the distribution rights for every ski racing is really complex. I get it, but whatever the end result is poor. So I'm going to judge by the end result. I want to leave this one with on a bit more of an upbeat note, because again, like this is absolutely remarkable. So this is like a weird, I'm actually going to start with a little bit of a criticism, but I don't, it's not really a criticism, but she has been so good and impressive and consistent, dominant and consistent that I've, been paying a lot of attention to how different media outlets, 
talk about this or even how it gets talked about on social media. And sometimes this is like the US ski team. But there has been a lot of language like, Michaela did it again. She is unstoppable. She can't be beat. And I'm like, well, hang on a second. She can actually be beat. She does, yeah. And it, it, almost, it almost to me diminishes what she is pulling off because she's not, she's not an alien. No. Like she shows up and there are a number of competitive athletes that on any given day can absolutely take the top spot. And to me, I, I, I almost have found myself thinking like, let's not get this twisted. She isn't on some untouchable plane and she is going out and still getting it done with such remarkable consistency that, I don't know, it just found myself, I, I don't like the phrasing where it's like, this is inevitable, it's, it's over. It, it seems to diminish all the years, all the years of consistency, all of the work showing up on every given day, sometimes when you are not feeling well at all. And still just getting it done. And it is incredibly impressive. Uh, it is the most impressive thing we've actually ever seen in skiing. Yeah, I, I agree. And it's like one of the subtleties of ski racing is, is there's so many variables on every day. And like we saw what happened to her at the Olympics last year. Somehow that snow service, yep. her skis and her technique did not align. And she had a horrible Olympics by her standards. So that's just and that's ski racing. You could see it in her voice and her the way she was comfortable with it. It's like you have to be comfortable with losing. Um you know, I've heard this one from like golfers and tennis players um, that it's just like you have to be as comfortable with losing as you do with winning because you're going to lose and you're going to go through slumps. So it isn't inevitable. She's gone through slumps and to watch her this year and just she is dominating this year and still loses races because like you can just be it's fractions of a second. Um, you know, the course conditions like from the the flip you're running 30th and how the course conditions deteriorate and how far you're ahead the one hole that developed to like just there's so many variables and that's why it's such an impressive sport to be so dominant in it's just like you're constantly dealing with changes so again yeah Michaela she needs more acknowledgement from the ski world and from the national world how rad this is and how good she is I've always kind of said she my analysis of Michaela she she learned from two of the women that I grew up ski racing with, Lindsey Vaughn and um, Julia Mancuso. She had the talent of Julia. Julia was one of the single most talented skiers I've ever seen in my life. She was bananas. And then she watched Lindsey Vaughn, who knew how to work harder and train harder than anyone and put such focus into winning that that was her entire life. She is like a blend, the perfect blend of Julia and Lindsey. And it was like, it's kind of cool because I know that those women acknowledged their place in history. I know she acknowledges it. She learned and was pushed by those two. And what we're watching now is like, yeah, the greatest ski racer in history. 
Where to next? Oh, we are going to talk about uh, politics. We are going to go deep oh. into politics, but uh, in a you don't say in a good way. I'm actually really happy about <laughs> this. I saw this. Um, so, um, my local little kind of weekly news outlet, um, the Moonshine Inc., which has done a great job and has stuck around, and they just do really good local news stories. You know, they've always kind of have a weekly out at the grocery stores, that kind of style, and they've just been on top of it. And it's uh, really cool to see. But there is this one thing that caught my eye. Um, headline is Cortez Masto co-sponsors bipartisan act to keep ski fees local. So U.S. Senator Catherine Cortez Mastro, Democrat from Nevada, um, Senator Michael Bennett, Democrat from Colorado, and John Barrasso, um, a senator, a Republican senator from Wyoming, came together to introduce the Ski Hill Resources for Economic Development Act, which is called the Shred Act. Shred. Which I want to say first, this is the best named bill in American history. <laughs> <laughs> Granted, if it was like regarding like getting rid of documents, maybe the context of there would be a little poor. Right, but when a it, different. In, in ski terms, great bill. Just nailed it on the the, the naming of this bill. <laughs> Are we done? No. Are we just moving no, on? No, or should we I actually mean, tell people what's in the yeah, bill? Yeah, we should tell people. Like it's uh, okay. essentially what it's saying is that the the fees that are generated by ski areas on forest service land will be more held locally so instead of ski area fees going into the u.s forest um, service which then goes into the u.s department of agriculture instead of just essentially going to washington and then going part of general funds and being part of their overall budget they want to take those those funds and keep them more local and fund their local forest services with these funds. So all in all, I think it's awesome. That makes a lot of sense. You know, these, uh, these ski areas provide a huge source of funding for the USDA. They're saying, uh, on average $40 million annually. And so if that extra million dollars can go to, uh, the North Lake Tahoe region, that's a huge amount of funding that's going to help solve local issues. And they're saying, you know, they want to keep those uh, portion of ski fees to offset increased recreational use, support local ski permit and program administration. So just like keep it local for local issues, which is awesome. Um, and I just, I like kind of wanted to bring this up because one, this is the kind of news that you tend to bypass. Um, a lot of people wouldn't see this um, because it's not national headlines. And on that too, the fact that like two Democrats and Republican of mountain states work together to co-sponsor this, I would just kind of like little applaud for the government. We kind of always see just the dysfunction in it, but things like this, which are like quietly behind the scenes, they don't make national headlines. They're not going to be in the New York times. These little things ha can have big deals and big impacts on our community. So like, kudos to these senators coming together and co-sponsoring this bill and putting it act so uh yet to be passed um i don't know when it will be up for passing on a floor what kind of package it's going to be in but um i just want to say like if you support this maybe uh call your call one of these senators and be like thank you yes i'm a skier please please help get this passed because i support this i'd love to get the right person on this podcast to kind of just flesh this out further, talk a bit about what they are already identifying perhaps as like 
best uses of some of these funds. Just dig in, just dig in on this. But yeah, it, it does seem like this is a positive development for sure. And uh, yeah, would be cool to see it come to pass and um, hopefully make a very positive impact. Totally. No, it's, uh, it's uh, cool to see senators thinking about skiers and ski areas and, you know, some of the issues that uh, that we face, which I think we've got as a topic a little bit on a little bit more mountain town kind of topics. But um, where but we can go probably not much more to say on that. So why don't we jump to the next next topic? Yeah. So this comes from an article published in Climbing Magazine um, titled, Why Did Eddie Bauer lay off its whole team of professional athletes. And basically what happened here is that all 11 members of Eddie Bauer's guide-built athlete program were laid off in one fell swoop, effective immediately. And the company has said that they would instead, going forward, work with what it calls brand contributors which is, quote, a varied group of adventurers, photographers, fishers, kayakers, and more, all with large social media followings. And the article goes on to kind of basically just ask this question, can influencers and community advocates replace athletes? So that's kind of what we've got. I don't know. You're an athlete. Thoughts? <laughs> Am I? <laughs> you, you just I did a backflip, remember? Um, you get your, your your creds back. Yeah, I did a backflip. <laughs> Sweet. Got it. Um, yeah, it's uh, so I know probably too much of this story and too many players involved on all sides to really comment too much because I know too much of the story and I don't want to go into it nor get anyone in trouble. Um, but I will say a few different things. One, it's fully within their rights as a company to drop all their athletes like People lay out, get laid off from companies all the time. We've seen major layoffs happening recently. So it's like, yeah, that's a, it's a business decision. It's a harsh business decision. You have a lot of people who are probably relying on the income from a title sponsor like an Eddie Bauer to support their living, to support their feats of athleticism, to go to places that are really remote and challenging and go do their adventures in whatever way they are. So it's a bit harsh. I could say that and there's humans involved, but it is, that's a right. So if they want to make a pivot, um, that's fully within their rights. And to say like the pivot to influencers, like influencers, as we've talked about here is a very loaded term these days. Like it, it, it sparks emotions of anger and reaction and just like kind of blasphemy. And like, we, we just like, it has a negative connotation. So I think a lot of people are going to be negatively biased against this. Um, but like, I also look at it as like, could Eddie Bauer compete with the North Face, with Arcteryx, with Patagonia, with Solomon, with all these brands that have marquee athletes on their outerwear? Like, wouldn't it be better to differentiate yourself in a different way? Maybe it's something like completely different. And they're like, you know, we're just going to go for a broader market. We have like hundreds of retail locations and stores, you know, having this athlete team doesn't work with our brand. I bet that happened in there. So 
to me, it's like, yeah, that sucks. Some of my friends got laid off and it's a, it's a harsh on, on them, but like that's business. And that's like kind of the agreement we as athletes knowingly go into, into this sport, we do not have much job security to the question. Can influencers and community advocates replace athletes? No, they cannot, but we can coexist. And I think there is a space for influencers because influencers have different messages than athletes. Um, they're going to naturally, their content life is going to be very different than the content life an athlete. And to say that like an influencer's content is like not as valuable as an athlete's, well, that's all up until the individual viewer. A lot of people would probably connect with an an, uh, an influencer far more than an athlete. You know, they may be more relatable. They may be able to want to do that sort of lifestyle more than they do an athlete. So it's a, it's a weird thing. I don't think that, you know, influencers are ever going to replace athletes. I've seen companies experiment with it and fail at it and go back to athletes. But I do think if done right, it can work. There are plenty of brands that I can't think of off the top of my head that kind of have this sort of marketing model um, to like to be that this is demeaning to athletes, to demeaning to even influencers, like whatever, man, like people are trying to like make a living at the, as how they want, like with, with quote unquote influencers, I've always thought I'm like, don't, don't hate the player, hate the game. Like if you have a problem with an influencer is like, think about like the people that are paying them because they see value in it. So if this influencer, you don't like what they are, what they're doing or whatnot, just like, I don't know. Don't follow them. Don't ignore them because like, it's not taking anything off of my paycheck necessarily. It's not taking anything away from the world. They're providing value for somebody and it just might not be you. Yeah. And when I first heard about this, I mean, my first thought was, well, why just do a full categorical dismissal of the entire athlete program at like, why not do the mix, right? Why not keep some and the other? So, and by the way, I have not talked to anybody about this. So this is just, here's, you know, some of my speculation, but obviously Eddie Bauer has the first ascent brand. The first ascent brand within Eddie Bauer was always positioned to be like, this is the hardcore. This is our technical apparel. This is, you know, designed by guides for guides. Like this was their attempt to really sort of compete against the technical apparel from companies like Arcteryx, North Face, etc. So you kind of sort of already hinted at this a little bit, but, but my thought is like, okay, maybe we're going to see first ascent go away. And that would mean that Eddie Bauer is maybe, I don't know if this is the best analogy, but maybe repositioning itself or just saying like, Hey, we are a bit more like an LL bean than a North face or Arcteryx or, or Patagonia, et cetera. That would certainly be coherent and would then point to, well, why not keep some athletes on and do a mix of kind of more straight influencers and athletes? And it's like, well, if we're just pivoting here, that's what I got. Well, I do know that First Ascent is one of their better performing lines financially, and it is not going away. <laughs> so um, 
there was some stuff that I've definitely heard from what was been said that you're like, mm, that was a little harsh and maybe not the best way to do it. And that's what I look at this whole thing. And it kind of goes points to what you just said in that you could have done this a better way. Like in many ways, like you're making headlines for a pretty negative act. You probably could have just like partially laid off some people kept some of the best performers kept that and while also bringing in influencers that's just the only thing from a marketing angle like i can't say you as a brand like if eddie bowers thinks that influencers and lifestyle advocates and everyday people are going to be better for them then that's their business decision they think it i can't argue against that but what i can argue against is the strategy of doing something so drastic that it makes headlines for it then you may might not have thought of this from the right marketing angle um i think like what i've witnessed in kind of marketing and the like marketing world when it comes to individuals is that there's this kind of erosion of middle class it is going more to the top athletes the the like biggest names are getting the most support and funding and attention and then there's this like huge population at the low end that is really cheap that is actually really effective marketing wise like a lot of people tend to call them like micro influencers and there's agencies that like literally have hundreds of names and they'll give you like 500 bucks if you post something and so i'm seeing this like low class and then upper class and the middle class has kind of been really, really tough to navigate and really tough to get to that next level. So to, to just go like all in on one side. Yeah. And make headlines for it. Maybe not the best move, but it is, they're right. See, if that's the case, then that's just depressing to me because I'm trying to give sort of the benefit of the doubt, or like if, if there's a pivot going on here, then this would actually be coherent and make sense. If you're coming back with like, nah, it actually wasn't. And they're going to keep the first descent label around. And we just got rid of all our athletes. Then I'm like, what are you doing? You know? And, 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 and this is, I'm, I'm just tired of companies doing dumb fucking things. And that's a dumb fucking thing. It's short-sighted. It just points back to like, are there actually people at larger companies calling shots that like where it actually is about the community? And again, I, I have no time for, for like handouts. We, we, you and I talk about this all the time. If it's like, hey, I'm really good at skiing, so you should give me money. I'm like, nope, not at all. Like you, ha you have to be providing more value for a brand than that. And I'm all for that. And, and if you're just good at skiing, therefore you think that everybody ought to hand you a boatload of money. I'm not, I'm not advocating for that, but still we've been over that a bunch, but still to just be like, well, we just don't need it, but we're still going to claim we're doing this like technical stuff. Again, I guess I should give the benefit of the doubt and we'll see what they roll out. But I don't know. This if this is just more stupid decision making by big brands, this is why people don't like big companies. Yeah, I I totally agree with you. And I kind of want to point out on that same kind of topic one thing that this the emailer said. Um he puts in there if the brand supports authentic community leaders or creators it might just deepen its connection with new grassroots community and by supporting athlete uh, athletes a brand encourages the long-term development and growth of a sport and everyone involved and i like in all my 
years with Solomon, which is well over 20 years. And I always point back to them and am thankful for them investing in me and thinking of this long-term aspect that I might bring to not only them, but also to the sport. Like I started off with Solomon when I, well, when I was 16, I was racing, but as a free rider, about 19, 20 years old. And there was a long lull of me just kind of toiling around, sort of in the bottom. And they really could have been like, I was almost there for 10 years before I really started kind of getting to that next level, getting to the top tier of the sport. And I was always thankful for it to them to be like, dude, you guys invested in me. You believed in me and it's paying off now. Like we look at this, like you, you spent money on me and supported my career. You gave me the, the ability financially to take winters off and just go ski and chase opportunities and go film and try and deliver as much as I can. And it took a long time to develop the skills, the relationships and get the opportunities to deliver, but they invested in that. And now that's paying off for them. And, you know, in many ways, like if they had invested me 10 years ago, like obviously the 50 wouldn't have existed, the the popularity of that. And so it's like, I do believe in the value of investing in people long-term. And that's where you kind of like, if I were to sum this all up, the one thing I don't like is short-term business. Like, goals, ideas, like things that are built on short term, like business ideas tend to fail pretty quickly. And I think long term tends to do a lot more damage, but there's a lot of variables within a company. There's a lot of personal accomplishments within a company that make people want to think short term. There's investor relations, all that kind of stuff. So I just, if the only thing I kind of look at this from is like, sum it up, like, fully within their rights. It might work better for their business plan. Um, but like if they're thinking in terms of short term versus long term, investing in the sports and mountain climbing and skiing as a whole, and they're deciding not to do it because of whatever reason, I still think is it's going to be a long term negative for them. And they kind of just did it in the wrong way. Like generating headlines for firing your team, that's like pretty bad. I mean, we're talking about it right now. If they laid off half their team, we wouldn't be talking about it right now. That's right. Yeah. Be be freaking better at business. It's so stupid. So anyway, if the CEO of Eddie Bauer wants to come on the podcast and talk about it, I'm I'm very happy to hear a different side. But the fact is right now, we are discussing public perceptions of what went down and it's a terrible look. And if it's just another dumb corporate bungling, then you deserve what you get. Yeah, I will say, and this is why I feel like it's a little uncomfortable. I know I know multiple people, including the head, the new CEO pretty well, and also a lot of the athletes pretty well. So it's definitely, I'm like a little want to feel guarded because you know these people personally, but at the same time, like, yeah, like I, I would love to hear um, Tim's Tim Bantle, the new CEO, his rationalization. I bet he's got a good reason. Um, would he admit to like what I think is the, a mistake of making headlines? I don't know, but I definitely say making headlines by firing a ton of people, that's a mistake. All right. I'm all fired up. I need some Canadian news yeah. to put me in a better mood. This is a great Canadian news story. <laughs> this is great. I saw what you put in and I'm just like, what is happening right now? So anyway, carry on. <laughs> yes. Uh, we're gonna, I'm going to give a shout out and an apology. So Chris Cromwell, 
becoming my like go-to Canadian news source. Um, last week referenced her for the article that she sent me, I believe. Uh, I already forget what it was. But anyways, one thing I did, I said he, not she. Chris Cromwell, sorry about that. Publicly, I, I messaged her privately and said, I'm sorry. But she sent this along and was kind of brought it up in the best sort of summation is like, I can't believe in Canada, this creates national news. <laughs> and this is like full <laughs> national news. And it just points to like, how, like, how awesome Canada is because like, Eh, there's not that much going on and we're generally just really friendly. So this is going to make national news. And it's uh, the title of it is uh, three kids in Saskatchewan will have to grow their hair out after a mishap with an electric shaver and an overzealous four-year-old barber. And it's a guy walking around and showing all his kids who all have pretty much one stripe of shaved hair through all of this poor kids, brothers and sisters. And it's just, it's a very heartwarming video of laughing as you know, like a four-year-old like shaved their kid, their brothers and sisters heads with just one like skunk stripe down the middle. But more than anything, it's just like, this is national news. I want to live in this country if this is national news. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And like, yeah, nobody's ear got you know, sawed off. There's no, there's, yep. It's just some people that, uh, yeah, have a shaved stripe down their head. Kids so, with funny haircuts. That's great. It's great. Kids with funny haircuts. National news. By the way, this needs to be said. I had somebody write in to say that you and I needed to watch a show. Let, Letter Kenny. Letter Kenny. I do need to watch that. I watched like one episode, maybe one and a half. It would fit, it would slot right in definitely with like sort of our Canadian news typical coverage. Uh, again, we did, we've we never claimed that our Canadian news coverage is like good coverage. Oh. It's just, it's it's our coverage, right? Yeah, you you pretty quickly catch catch the vibe, I think. I don't I don't think it it takes you too long. I don't think there's a big pivot, you know, in 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 the show where it starts to become like succession or something. But uh yeah, it, it's it's pretty enjoyable i'd say well have you ever watched trailer park boys one of the greatest canadian tv shows of all time i have definitely not watched it systematically i've caught an episode here or there very similar yeah that's what i get the vibes from i've seen some clips on social media and trailers of it except for trailer park boys is like i don't know i think it was actually pretty groundbreaking because it was like the kind of mockumentary and really like it's dry humor but it's also slapstick but it's like just so like that mockumentary humor that's been popularized by the office and by all these like big name uh, parks and rec and on community and all these shows and it was like it was pretty ahead of a time um i remember watching it in like 2005 and like being stuck in down days in alaska and just binge watching entire dvds of the whole season of trailer park boys and the first like watch through you're kind of like first couple episodes you're like what is this this is not that funny and then you just like start dying of laughing as like ricky does the best ricky isms of all time and just like i don't know i think the canadians as we've said here have a good sense of humor and uh i do need to watch letter kenny because i've always been a fan of canadian tv shows all right well you got that to look forward to, I guess. That's our Canadian news. Yeah. Are we getting into Mountain Town Advice? Which is this first one seems like a blend of what we just did and Mountain Town Advice. It is a bit of a blend. So tell me about it. 
Yeah, yeah. Let's try this. So Daniel wrote in and wanted us to discuss this article that was published in The Guardian. Uh, Daniel wrote, Greetings, Jonathan, longtime listener and lurker here. I am a full-time college student residing in Atlanta, Georgia, which I'm sure is a rare breed among your audience. By the way, pause. I think everybody thinks that like blister readers and listeners only also live in mountain towns. And I assure you from the analytics, that's not remotely true. Like we, we kind of cast, um, I mean, I know there's only a hundred listeners. Say, we could track all hundred very well is what you're oh, trying to say. We could track all hundred. Cool. Yes. Yeah. And, uh, they're, they're, uh, very proportionately spread out around the globe, but, um, so no, don't, don't feel alone. Don't feel alone in in Atlanta. I'm, I'm sure. In fact, that maybe we need to get like all the, all the Atlantans, Atlantans, Atlantians, Atlantinians, <laughs> probably Atlantinians. We got to figure out how to way to like get them all together. And then they could like show up for a reviewing the news listening session and, you know, just, just feel a little less alone in the world. Wow. That sounds like very dreamy of you to the fact that there's two people uh, that listen to this podcast out of the hundred that live in Atlanta <laughs> and that they'd want to yeah. take time out of their day to listen to us talk together. <laughs> You watch. Okay. So this is what we're going to do. If you live in Atlanta and are listening to this episode, please send us an email or hit us up on social and let me know. And I will report back. I want to say, I'm going to, I'm going to give a little like breaking the fourth wall here. One of the things, okay. the reason why I keep going with this joke, everybody is that because <laughs> like pretty early on, I was like curious. I'm like, how many people are listening? What are the metrics? How long have we been doing this show? Two and a half years or so. <laughs> Jonathan yeah. is yet to send me the metrics <laughs> to how many listeners listen to the blister podcast. I've seen it for gear 30, um, but I've never uh. seen it for this. So I still have <laughs> no idea because you will refuse to send it to me. So I am not persuaded to not stop thinking there's only a hundred listeners. Oh, got it. No, that I don't send it because it's exactly a hundred. Okay, perfect. <laughs> so yeah, you don't, it's exactly a hundred, and and I'm gonna say at least three of them live in Atlanta. Okay. Well, nice. That was that was quite an interruption. So anyway, Daniel is a college student residing in Atlanta, and he loves to live vicariously through everything you guys do over at Blister. Oh, that's nice. Okay, Daniel continues. I'm a massive fan of reviewing the news. And then he says, I am a part of the hundred and thought this article would pique your and Cody's interest for next month's edition. The Guardian, as you already know, is a massive publisher and the points they bring up in this article titled Lake Tahoe has a people problem, how a resort town became unlivable are things you guys have definitely touched on before. But seeing such a juggernaut go into detail on this matter with official data and numbers really made my jaw drop. Thank you guys for all that you do and keep up the amazing work. So, Cody, you've seen this article in The Guardian. And this is stuff that we touch on quite a bit, as Daniel says. Anything in particular from the article that stands out to you? The biggest thing that stands out that it's something as big as The Guardian covering this, because I feel like locally this is talked about in mountain towns a lot. And whether that's local news sources, regional news sources, um, we just kind of see 
these topics being brought up a ton and we talk about it here a ton but the fact that like guardian did a feature about it and really focused on tahoe like i will say one thing is like this isn't just tahoe this is obviously you could write every place that says tahoe you could put jackson hole you could put crested butte you could put like aspen you could put any mountain town salt lake city we all kind of have a lot of these same issues that are brought up here um my biggest thing and the 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 reporter and the the news outlet did a really good job of showing like kind of how complex of a problem this is and that's where i kind of want to like take take time to step back a little bit and focus at like the 30,000 foot viewpoint. Quite often we're focused on like short-term rentals, jobs, all these things, but it's kind of like everything. And, you know, like I point to things of like this issue that's happening to mountain towns where it is unaffordable for basic workers to live here. Like not even basic, like you think restaurant employees, but like professionals, like uh, nurses, firefighters, uh, people that work at the PUD, those kind of very essential jobs are not able to live here. Like we're, we are facing a very, very dire problem and you know that makes towns unlivable so saying unlivable is kind of uh, i think an accurate description but i point back to these things of being like look like we're seeing more and more concentration of wealth at the top the erosion of the middle class more people have wealth the more they are able to afford second homes in the last 10 15 years we've had absolutely bottomed out interest rates so like as of right now we're seeing interest rates go up but like, why sell your home? If you're paying 2.75% on your mortgage, you have no incentive to want to sell your home. Like when I walk around my neighborhood, when I drive through Tahoe and I just like kind of laughable of how many empty homes there are. And it's just like, well, what's the incentive for people to put renters in there? Their mortgage is really cheap for what it is. They're not losing money. They're only making money on it and they can just come up whenever they want to come visit Tahoe and their big house. And so then all of a sudden we're seeing the erosion of just the, the renting class, the, the, the ability to just have houses that like a, a mortgage owner is going to be like, let's offset our costs because our mortgage is three and a half, four grand a month and just like put renters in there so we can afford this home and then use it strictly as an investment. They don't even have to do that anymore. Um, to then everything that we've talked about so often before, all of a sudden in the last 10 years, we have the the new innovation of short-term rentals, Airbnb, that obviously erodes long-term livable housing solutions. Um, we've seen, you know, wage growth, um, though going up as of in the last year or two, pretty much not go up very much, um, especially relative to costs of living. Uh, we've seen inflation go up. Like it's just like there's so many things and they're really concentrated in mountain towns. Um, they're little microcosms for what's going on. And um I I was kind of stoked to to see this and I want because like the only way these problems are going to get solved is like pretty big changes at the governmental level whether that's regulation or incentive new laws new uh new permitting whatever it is that's going to happen at the government level and it takes big national news to put pressure on them um because I don't know. It, our little mountain towns, the problems are huge, but the population and voting base is small. So 
there's not much incentive to change even for government officials. So like, I don't know what the pressure is, but the pressure has got to come from a pretty high level media way to show that like, Hey, there's some serious issues and these towns could fall apart in the next 10 years if we don't do something as, as a country. By the way, at our blister summit, we did a panel session that we kind of just titled again, mountain town economics, you know, which is a series that we ran on the blister podcast. Uh, people should definitely go find those episodes. If you didn't catch them the first time around, the panel session was really, really good hopefully we will get that published in the next couple of weeks. But um, some very specific proposals were named that frankly had a lot of us just kind of cheering for. And so I very much look forward to getting that put out. These were some ideas that I had not heard before. And I think they make a ton of sense and address some of the things that you were just talking about. And some of the things that we've been kind of talking about more generally. So we'll see. I mean, this is Colorado sort of focused first, but some things that are going to be pushed up to the state level. Anyway, stay tuned. Hopefully in the next few weeks, we'll we'll have that Mountain Town Economics panel out. But it was good stuff. And, and I always love it when it's not just like interesting ideas, but like very concrete numbers and plans that will, I, I believe here in Colorado, will get moved toward an actual vote. I agree. And I think even like, you know, like California last year pretty much made it so that if you're putting an ADU on your house, it's going to be approved. There's no more restrictions on ADUs. And I just have a friend that actually is building a garage and putting an ADU over the top of it, accessory dwelling unit, and he just got it all approved. And I was like, really? That fast in the last couple months? So that's a thing. But uh, those are, and there's like specific numbers, what California thinks, how much more housing that is going to bring. You know, the other ideas, like we were driving home yesterday from skiing and I was watching those empty houses. I'm like, they should almost like require people that have second homes or it's like there's more incentive to build an ADU so that you could house someone like I can get if you don't want to have renters in your house like you want to use your house when you come up and whatnot but it's like you kind of like you got to also contribute but you know that's a bullshit idea with no financial backing that I know of or any data or numbers behind it but I just I think what it, what's gonna be hopefully happening is this experimentation of mountain town communities and we've talked about a little bit um, with uh, strs of just like such and such mountain communities addressing strs with this sort of angle and such and such communities addressing at this sort of angle and see what kind of works itself out so curious to listen to that because it'd be yeah obviously Colorado's a hotbed for this. So what can get pushed through there? What can, you know, work there could work for a lot of other places. Or maybe it's a failed experiment. We try something out here in Tahoe, out there in Jackson, wherever it is. Yeah. All right. Next one from Robert. Dear Jonathan and Cody, I was wondering if either of you had an opinion on a mountain towns locals having priority in the lift line. In the surfing world, which is very familiar to you, Cody, we often hear slash are encouraged to give deference to the locals in the lineup. I do surf, but had not yet experienced something similar in skiing. However, this past weekend was a storming powder day at my favorite ski resort, which is three hours away from me. 
Early in the day, I was in a quite long line for the only lift that was open to expert level terrain that day due to the weather, wind, whiteout, higher up on the mountain, etc. And a snowboarder finished his run and immediately attempted to cut in front of the back half of the line, which was around 50 people. When called out on this, he responded with something along the lines of, I live here and I get priority. Some in the lift line disagreed and heckled him. Some were okay with it. Ultimately, a lifty saw him cut the line and made him go to the back and wait his turn. So, what say the two of you? Should we be copying the surfers and giving locals priority? Or do we all need to wait our turn? Thanks for all the great content. Hmm. That's pretty debatable or maybe shows a questionable, (laughs) you know, source of judgment. But yeah, okay. Uh, Anyway, thank you, Robert. So what say you? Uh, That's a great question. And it's interesting. I've been kind of struggling back and forth between surfing and skiing. My first instinct is like, no, locals should not get to cut. (laughs) Like, It's a line and it's like we've been doing the same thing as locals lining up in a queue, getting ready to go up the mountain to ski the line of your choice. So in the lift line, no locals should not get priority. And this guy that cut in front of it, he got appropriately served and got sent to the back of the line. That's what should happen. Um, just because you live here, which I don't know how you would have to prove that because it's such like, uh, you, you know, if all your friends like, no, he lives here, show your license, all that kind of stuff, like BS, like there's, there's not that kind of like lineup mentality that happens in surfing. So, uh, when it comes to locals, like, no, just get, get to the back of the line. But what I will take from it, and this is like one of the things like localism in surfing is something that I don't fully condone, but I don't fully condemn. Like there are aspects of localism that I think are really positive for surfing and the individuals that surf. So like, I think it's really good thing to put a lot of time in a place and a lot of time in a sport and gain a lot of experience and work your way up through a ladder to get to a place where you not only deserve, but are have earned the best waves that come through on that day. Um, I just look at it as a way of, because like that's kind of life and that's a metaphor for life and just showing up to a place that you've never been before. doesn't matter what level of surfer you are, paddle out to the head of the lineup, get behind every single person and catch the very first, very best wave that comes in just seems like what we'd kind of harp against in all of life of just cutting the line that in the line, not just in the direct sense, but the metaphorical sense of being like how much time and energy you put into it, to this place, to this area, to this sport. Um, by showing respect, by waiting your turn, you make more friends. You, you enjoy yourself more by like spending not just a day and waiting for, but waiting for years to get to it, I think gives you a sense of pride. Like I always harken back to, there was one point, um, that Jeremy Jones, there was this line that he had ridden in the Tahoe backcountry, and he was the first guy to ride it. It was a beautiful line. I asked him, where is it? And he's like, I'm not, I won't tell you. And I was like, what? We're like buddies. What the hell? And he was like, look, he's like, you're going to enjoy it much more if you find it for yourself. And it felt like a form of like what we would call gatekeeping now. I'm not going to tell you where it was, but guess what? In the 
few years it took me to find that line, I got to explore pretty much a lot of the regions around Tahoe in my local area and find new things for that were new to myself. In that time, I gained valuable experience in backcountry travel. I gained value experience in snowmobile travel. I gained value experience in like reading topography and snow. And when I found it, I was so fucking stoked. I just remember like, there it is. And I went and read it. And it was like, I was so proud of it. I was like, I think I was the first skier to ride it. And I was like 19 years old. And I like texted him. I'm just like super fired up. And I was like, he gave me, he didn't just hand me something and I earned it and I felt better because of it. So I look at the same thing with surfing of like, earning something just feels better. And I know you want that best wave right now, but in the long run, I guarantee you're going to feel better for it. So when it comes back to all the way to skiing, I think there's lessons to be learned for that. And I don't know exactly how to translate it into skiing because it's like, well, maybe don't go into that terrain that you're not quite capable of, or go into the backcountry if you're not quite capable of, but just like the overall lesson is be patient, be respectful, earn your way to there. And I think you're going to enjoy it in the long term. In this instance, don't cut lines. I mean that, yeah. And don't say because you're a local, um, what defines you as a local? We've tried to define that. I don't know. There's no real good definition. Even if you're born here, that doesn't make you a local. I always like to say the more you give back to the community, the more local you are. So how do we define that? So I don't think it gives you any extra status, um, in that sort of way here. I think if you put the time in, you're going to be in the back of the line and probably happy for it and know where to go, the secret little stash on that next run, as opposed to just cutting your way in front of people. Yeah. yeah and I, I think the the analogies just very quickly break down between a surf spot and mechanized chairlift accessed ski areas that are businesses where you have to buy passes or buy lift tickets. Like this just all breaks down. Like I don't get to walk into a movie theater and like cut the line and be like, sorry, I live here. <laughs> totally. Right. Like we, we don't, we don't think this in any other walk of life or at the grocery store. So this, this breaks down pretty quickly. And, um, you know, I also sort of, again, as I'm pretty sure everybody knows, I am definitely not a surfer, but I kind of like that like surfing isn't skiing. Climbing isn't surfing. And there are these unique elements that are baked into the cultures of these different sports activities, et cetera. And I, I don't necessarily want to level all of that out. No. So I, I think you've already spoken really well about, you know, at a surf spot. Yeah, it's a bit different. And people that have been been there a long time and really know that spot, perhaps have done work around that spot, there can be a reward. But at at ski areas, no. Everybody has bought a lift ticket or a pass, get to the back of the line and yeah. Yeah. Don't cut lines. Yeah. <laughs> All right. We need to be working to wrap this up. I think we move to what we've been reading and watching. And really, I actually just want to hear you talk about, I know you've just finished rewatching Succession. I haven't even yet started a rewatch of Succession. So I am riveted and all ears. What was it like finishing up a second version of Succession just before we get the start of our next season of Succession? 
Uh, it was awesome. So it was like, it's interesting to rewatch a show. And like, I remember telling Elise, like, no, no, I'm fine with rewatching this because I already watched it all. And then I'm like, let's watch this together. And, um, the show is even more brilliant than I thought. And funnier than I thought too. And you start to see some of the stuff early on where you're not necessarily laughing. You start to laugh a little bit more knowing the characters and who they're going to turn into. Um, and just uh, being that the dialogue uh, is just, it's so, so good. There's so many lines in there that I just like, I literally had to pause and laugh and like talk about it with Elise. So it's like probably one of the most dark comedies i think out there it's a it's like this shakespearean drama but it's like a comedy dressed up as in a shakespearean drama um but then on the heels of the announcement that season four of succession is going to be the last season uh they announced that jesse armstrong said this is going to be the last season when i was pretty much halfway through season three I almost felt like for the first time, yeah, I hope this is going to be the last season. And it's a good thing for this to be the last season. Because the other side of it, as I realized in a rewatch, is that like the kind of storylines are kind of get a little cyclical. And you're like, how many more times can we just get these people and this like rotation of who's going to be at the top to be the next succeeder to logan and you're like it's just kind of like the same infighting that's going over and over and over and you're just going to kind of get the same story told from a different angle over and over and over my first rewatch i just want to spend more time with these characters so it's like yeah i didn't want the show to go on forever but watching the second time as you're getting to season three you're kind of like all right it's same thing again, like people being shitty to each other and backstabbing each other. And you're kind of like, oh, the like plot line actually doesn't have much further to go. Um, and spoiler alert, if you haven't watched the show, stop listening like now. Um, but when I watched on the second time, the thing in the first time watch versus the second watch was the biggest drastic difference was that well, upon the first watch, when Kendall didn't die, I was happy about it. In this rewatch, when Kendall didn't die, I was bummed about it. Because I think that was the logical conclusion to the way his story arc was going. I don't think there's much more to go with Succession and Kendall. Because like he is who he is. And the final dinner conversation that he had with his dad was almost talking to him in the pre past tense. It was like... It was essentially Kendall coming to his end and knowledge, acknowledging it. He's like, I am not going to be this your succeeder. I'm not like you, dad. And I am going to separate from my family entirely. As he says, I'm not even going to speak at your memorial. Like if he would have died the next day in the despair of finally realizing that, that's the way his story arc went. And I'm not telling like in the sick macabre, like these are real people. I'm talking like just storylines, like the tragedy of that. I think that's where it, it kind of should have ended. And in the second watch, I was like, really? He's back? Like he kind of should have died. That was the end of it. So it was, it was interesting in that sort of way. Um, because, you know, this being the fourth and final season, it's like, what are we going to watch? Like is now that Kendall is, you know, he's alive. We're not going to watch like three seasons of Kendall being the CEO of, you know, of Waystar. You're <laughs> just like, that's going to be horrible TV. And like his brother and sister fighting for it. And it's just like, what, what is this going to turn into? So I think for a, 
a real like true logical story like having this be the final season makes perfect sense and the rewatch really cemented that in me i'm like yep the story needs to be it needs to end man that that dinner scene that that still might be the best maybe the best episode of tv i've ever watched and and if that's not the best scene that's ever been on tv it is it is high on anything I've ever seen. And and I have to say, I I this will be relevant because I want to mention a film that I watched recently that I found incredibly infuriating. But um I have so much confidence in the succession writers. And that's what it's about. I mean I, I don't even care what the plot line is. The writing has been I was making the case when we were going through some of the season three episodes, I was like, that's just straight up Shakespeare. And the command, the command and control that these writers have shown, I've got a lot of confidence going into this last season that they are not going to fumble this. And I think it's really hard to bring a series like this that's been so, so top shelf and high level to to bring that to conclusion is a difficult thing. And even so, I've got a lot of confidence in these folks. I have confidence. I have confidence in them because they said they're going to end it. Like, because here you are. Imagine the, like, the personal incentive to continue oh, the, the most successful yeah. thing you've ever done and something that is going to go down in the history books and to be like, no. I'm not chasing the money. I'm not making this thing a 10 part series. Not like, like the walking dead, which is just so stupid and it keeps going on. They're just like making advertising revenue off of it. I'm so committed to my storytelling that I'm going to say, this is the end. Like that takes a lot of guts to do. And that's where I have confidence in them. And that's why, yeah, Jesse Armstrong has written something that is one of the best TV shows in history. And uh, I, yeah, it's, uh, again, I, we always talk about it, but I cannot wait for season four. And I'm really happy I did the, the rewatch. I need to just like take two weeks off no blister and just sit down and like do this. Um, yeah. So if anyway, if we like stop publishing anything on the site or there's no podcast, you'll, you'll know what's happening. So tell me about the movie that you were just re- referring. Yeah. So if, if any of you, I feel like this is the right thing to say. If any of you read, um, film criticism or listen to any podcasts about films, whatever this movie tar starring Kate Blanchett, written by Todd Field, or written and directed, I believe. And again, I, apologies, I don't know if there was a team of writers. There usually is on a film like this. I don't know. This film has been really celebrated. It's gotten a lot of talk. Like, this is definitely the best picture of 2022. I found it, I, I got just angry at the film. It is brilliant in so many ways. There, It is magnificent in so many ways And I was talking about this with Jeff McFetridge, and so I don't need to kind of just rehash that conversation. But if you're interested, well, frankly, if you want to hear one of like, I don't know, the greatest artists around talk about this film, check out the Crafted podcast that I posted with Jeff. He was out here in CB. We watched it at my house. It was just like, there's way too many ideas going on in this thing. You just needed to like, streamline this and focus on a couple of the ideas. 
And if I feel like if that had been done, this had the potential to be what I think was the best film of the year. And um, so it just felt like, oh my God, the cinematography is incredible. Um, there's so many threads here that are so compelling, but you couldn't exercise some discipline to focus in and sort of follow certain lines through. And so I'm, I'm mad about it because it was so good in so many ways. And ultimately, I feel like it just kind of ended up in this mess. And uh, I'm a bit shocked that a number of critics that I really respect and think are very sharp and all the rest, they're like, they don't seem to be talking about the mess here. And so, I don't know, I, I'm either off on this one or I think they are and I kind of think they are. It's interesting. I think, you know, one of the things I've learned by making films, making episodes and making a ton of them is the quickest way you get into trouble is by having too many storylines and too many ideas and trying to synthesize them all into one. Um, and this mess that you're talking about, I think it ends up really like degrading a film. You can see where they're trying to go, but then you're just like, well, you got so many disconnected items. You're trying to bring it all back. And it's just like, it's exactly that. And it just makes it like terrible. It's one of the reasons why so many people ask me that like, they want longer episodes of the 50. I'm like, no, like if I try and tell multiple storylines, like I identified the main thesis of this ascent of this this climb and ski and go like okay what's that what did we talk about the most all other things get cast aside like mount stimson that was a massive suffer fest i had this really weird knee problem that was going on about it and like it was in there but it wasn't enough in there so we just cut it out and because otherwise you're just gonna like lose the impact and things are going to feel long i look at the films that had the most promise and then leave leave let you down are the ones that try and bring like five storylines together. Like books are a way because you spend 13 hours with a book where you can have a lot of story ideas and bring them together. But films, they really have to be simple. That's the one thing I've learned with writing them is like, you kind of have to be like so focused and so simple. Here's your one thing. That's what you're doing. If you try and do three things, five things, it's just going to confuse the audience. So, um, you're making me not want to watch it. But, I know. But yeah. I kind of want you to, and I, I would love it if you came back and you completely disagreed and you're like, agreed with all the the critics that I pay attention to and just thought this is amazing. But I, just an editor, just say, get rid of these streams or strands or themes and focus on these other ones. And I don't even care. There's so many interesting ones. I'm not even saying you got to take my particular favorite, but streamline this thing. And I think you get a better film. And um, anyway, so, but you can hear Jeff and me say a bit more about that over on that crafted podcast, but God, it just um, was really like pissed off because it's like, there's so much potential here. One quick mention of a book. I'm still very slowly working my way through actually Jeremy Jones's The Art of Schraupenism. We published an excerpt from Jeremy's book in our open mic series. And I wrote this introduction to it that frankly is I'm making some pretty strong claims about the quality of the writing and these moments and phrases and expressions. And I, I would understand if some people are like, wait, why are you mentioning this 
in the same breath as like Thoreau. Yeah. And, but as I can, as I continue to read, there are these passages in these moments and they feel very fresh to me. I didn't expect that. I honestly didn't see it coming. I, I had not read any of Jeremy's stuff prior to this book. So again, I'm going real slow through this, but I don't know if people want check out what I wrote, you can read some of Jeremy's stuff from the art of Shraupanism, but I'm still inclined to say this is this this warrants a read for anybody who spends time in the mountains. So that's it. Now that the summit's done, I also hope to spend more time with that book and get back to reading some other stuff. So I look forward to that. Cool. Um, it's interesting. I always think about that book and I'm like, oh, the, the amount of like light lessons and all the like deep lessons, even at that, that I've learned from Jeremy and I've learned from the time in the mountains. And you're like, just to provide insight into that, I think is such a huge value to people. So, um, I I think it's really cool. He did that. Um, because I don't know, I've learned so much from Jeremy. He's a freaking Jedi. So I definitely, I've, I've have a copy of it. I haven't really flipped through it, um, too much, but, but, uh, but yeah, can I also one last thing before I got to go and pick up yeah. a kid from daycare yeah. um can i hijack the conversation to promote my own products and be like where's your flash review on the 106 echo i'm really curious to hear what you got to say <laughs> well i haven't skied the echo yet okay right. because and i this actually points back to like maybe a conversation we had about a year ago i don't know but i was like i'm not skiing that thing in bounds so i did not ski it at the summit i saw it but i was like i'm I, and I remember, I don't know if we were talking on a Gear 30 podcast or if it was a Blister podcast where you're like, you kind of tease this. You're like, lightweight skis are getting really good. And you're like, I'm going to come to the summit and you're going to change your mind about how everything has to be heavy for inbound skiing. And um, I'm pretty sure you were alluding to the Echo. So I, I chose not to ski it inbounds at the summit. Which I, I think is a good call. I, I although I I haven't skied in bounds um, because I have tech bindings on it and there's no reason to. But it's like I've skied it in all kinds of various conditions and I've been impressed with it. But I would be curious to see what it feels like like in bounds and like see if like almost what your guys' thoughts are. It'd be like, could this be a versatile, you know, more fun centered ski, a softer ski at that, but work in bounds um, for a lot of people. You know, like for me, like it's a put tech bindings on it and ski every condition in the backcountry with it. And that's why I kind of like it so much. Um, I've really gotten to a place personally where I'm just like becoming very anti-carbon um, as it stands right now. I still think there's a lot of work to do with it, but so like not having carbon in it, I think is like such a game changer. And there's other companies that have done lightweight constructions without carbon, but like that I've realized like a little softer of a ski is way more valuable than a stiffer unpredictable ski that carbon brings to it and that's where i'm just like i keep reaching for it because i'm like in all conditions whether it's hard pack whether it's like soft deep how like it was yesterday i'm like this is going to be fun it's going to be predictable the only time i've like maybe shy away from it is if it's like a nine thousand foot day and or i've got a heavy pack on i'm like oh, i need to lighten my kit up a little bit and i'll live with the little bit of unpredictability of the like uh, of carbon in my ski but ultimately like i just keep reaching for that ski. So, yeah. All right. So I need to read more books and get in the backcountry. 
Totally. No, I'm curious to hear what you guys say. It was a weird process of being like pretty much like the only tester of this. And you're like, oh God, <laughs> like, am I, you know, Greg Hill tested it too. And he liked it. And he was the only other person I was getting feedback from, but it was like kind of a weird thing of being like, where we're launching a ski and I'm the only tester. So uh, I'm curious to hear whatever people say. So you could really, <laughs> really fuck with my entire emotions and ego. Yeah. If you guys just be like, this Trash. is the worst ski ever. <laughs> Terrible. Yeah. Okay, then well, I'll just be good. like, I'm a, I'm a professional. You guys just don't know how to ski, <laughs> right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. We'll get back into that that debate. So, exactly. Anything else you want to derail, or have you have you read anything? You just stopped reading now that you're a dad slash you're making your comeback as an athlete throwing backflips and stuff. No, I've got a book I'm reading right now. I'm almost finished with it. I was figuring I'd talk about it on maybe the next pod. Um, but no, it's been a little, yeah, it's been pretty, it's been pretty just like full go. You're pretty, the, even with childcare, it's like, go, 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 get home, shovel the whole time, bake your kid dinner, make dinner for yourself. Get one hour to watch an episode of secession or some sports. And then you're like, I got to get to bed. So yeah, and haven't been too much out of there. So, but yeah, that's life. I can't complain. It's been awesome. Great winter. And so let's see, we'll record this reviewing the news thing again in about a month. And so I assume this is going to be a pretty game on month for you looking to try to tick some of the remaining. Yeah. When I get back from Switzerland, it's full game on for the 50 since most of the lines are spring lines. So it's going to yeah. be pretty game on, but I'll yeah. try and carve out some time, be in the van. Give you a, give it a record a pod <laughs> I'll if I can. Try, I'll try to carve out some time. <laughs> oh, thank you, Cody. You're welcome, Jonathan. <laughs> me, me and the hundred listeners appreciate it. Yes, I appreciate it too. <laughs> well, I gotta go. I gotta get going. You gotta like, go. I gotta go, go pick up like a kid. So go get in. Thank indie. you. It's yeah, great man. To talk. We'll do it again soon. Sounds good. Later, dude. Well, that's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. I want to say thanks to Cody for the conversation. Thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing this episode. And to all of you, our beloved 100 listeners, thank you so much for listening. And if you haven't already left us a rating or a review in Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts, take a minute, leave us that rating and review, and I'll make sure to pass those along on to Cody because don't you get the sense he's like worried that it's just me and him talking nobody's actually listening to these things i think he's a little insecure about that so um leave us a little positive feedback if you enjoy these things and we will talk to you real soon